so many people spend so many of their waking hours investing themselves fiercely and spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of emotion, and a lot of cognitive thought doing something that is anywhere from mildly to horribly misaligned with the fundamental impulse that they have for effort, for work. And when you do that, you can work really hard, but you're working in a way that is not a true expression of the thing that you feel that you're here to do. I'm Amy Porterfield, and this is Online Marketing Made Easy. You are in for a treat, my friend. Today's podcast guest is absolutely fascinating. I could literally listen to him for hours, and I've been so looking forward to sharing his knowledge with you. His name is Jonathan Fields, and I met him in my very first year of going out on my own as an entrepreneur. Funny story about Jonathan. If you ever have heard me talk about the first time I ever launched a course and made a whopping $267, well, he was actually a big part of that story, but I've never said that. And so now that he's on the show, when I introduce him, I'm going to see if he remembers that. I'm 99% sure he does not remember this story but I'm going to refresh his memory. And it relates back to my very first botched launch of a digital course. Now, Jonathan has done so many amazing things in his career, including writing books, hosting a very popular podcast called The Good Life Project. And he's the founder and CEO of Spark Endeavors, a company that helps people and organizations discover the work that truly drives them. But today, specifically, I'm excited to chat with him about a concept that Jonathan actually created himself called Sparkotypes. Now, the cool part about this concept, this idea, which helps us all to discover our unique imprint for doing work that lights us up, is that it draws upon years of research and more than 25 million data points. 25 million. You can't argue with that. And by the end of today's episode, you'll have a clearer picture of what your Sparkotype is. And don't worry, he has a really cool assessment that you can take to figure it out and how you can use this information in your life to avoid uninspired work and burnout and start experiencing more meaningful work, excitement, and joy in your life. I know that you're going to love this episode and be able to implement it right away, so I won't make you wait any longer. Let's welcome Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm so, so honored you're here. I am so excited to be hanging out with you. It is such a pleasure to be able to just share ideas and stories and and also just to spend time with you and your community. Oh my goodness. So I talked about this in the intro and I won't get into all the details. And I think you and I have talked about this before, but I've told you the story about when I created my first digital course and while I was creating it, you said to me, but you're not an expert in that area. Do you remember this? (laughs) I actually don't remember that. It was a long time ago. (laughs) It was a long time ago. I mean, it had to have been 13 years ago. Something like that. Yeah. (sighs) 
But Jonathan, you don't even know it, but you are in a story that I tell all my first time course creators and literally have created lessons around it because I was creating a digital course on how to launch a book using social media. And so I was in one of your workshops in New York where you were talking about book launching like that many years ago. And so I'm like, you know what? I know social media so well. I'm going to teach people how to launch a book with social media, but I had never launched a book in my life. And so uh, while I was creating the course, you with your such sweetness, you were so kind about it, but you're like, the challenge I see is that you've never done this. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Launched it. Total failure. It was 200 and I made $267 after expenses, but it created all this content for me to teach my students how to make sure they create a course where they've gotten results first. So you have helped thousands and thousands of people and you didn't even know it. Wow. I had (laughs) no idea that one conversation so many years back um, had that impact. That's pretty funny. And that was a long time ago. Um, Wow. We've known each other for a long time, actually. (laughs) We really have, which is really sweet. The the minute I met you, you you acted as though you were my good friend. And I think you do that with most people you come in contact with, but it's something special about you. And I love, if anyone told me 13 years later, I'd be where I am, you're where you're at, and we literally will still be friends, that would, I would have had the biggest smile on my face ever. So thank you again for coming on the show. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to talk, I want to just get right into it. I want to talk about burnout because I told everybody in the intro who you are, what you're about, what you do, but the topic that literally will pique most people's interest right now with where we are in the world is this topic of burnout. And it's always a concept that's been on my show since I've had the podcast of coming up, uh, it comes up a lot, but man, we've been talking about it a lot more lately. So can you talk about why the level of burnout is so high right now? Yeah, this is, I mean, the conversation around it is at a fevered pitch right now. And for good reason, right? Because so many of us have been experiencing and, and even if you're doing something that you genuinely love and it fills you up, it's, it's tough for a bunch of different reasons. But I also think that the conversation is a little bit misdirected and, and here's, I'll explain why. So there are a lot of different contributors to burnout. Like sometimes it's just brute number of hours. Um, what a lot of people are pointing to, to the burnout that people have been feeling sort of like in this season of life is the complete annihilation of any boundaries between work and life. And sometimes that's actually not a terrible thing. You know, the, the concept of work-life blend has been around for a while. You just sort of seamlessly weave from one to the other. But then you throw in a complete groundlessness of like, nobody knows what the state of the world is. I mean, literally our worldview everything that we assume to be true and real and solid has been shattered. And we're left to sort of like reassemble the pieces in some sort of new, almost approximation of normal, which um, never seems to quite assemble into one puzzle. And along the way, we've been disrupted. So many people have been removed from an office setting, removed from people, removed from teams. Everything is virtual now. You're working in an environment where there's no clear beginning and end to anything right now. And you're feeling like you need to actually really show up and work hard because maybe your job is on the line. Um, and just because you're not you know, physically present with other people right now doesn't mean that you're not needed. And also there's a lot of fear around the fact that not being physically present around other people 
may make me kind of invisible. And then maybe people forget about me or maybe opportunities to advance in my career or organization are not going to be as readily available to me. So people are just constantly working and they're working in ways that they didn't use to before. And they're not properly set up with scaffolding and structure and technology and space that's comfortable to create. And, you know, like all sorts of different things that will let people around them, often your family know, Hey, like this is what's going on. I, I saw this wonderful post that Adam Grant put up recently where um, one of his kids made three paper signs and um, one was like, and it was yellow, red, green. And with a little thing like, you know, daddy's in here, like red was daddy's in here. He's like on a presentation. Do not come in under any circumstances unless it's an extreme emergency. And like they would stick that up on the door and then they would have a yellow one for like, you know, it's like daddy's working, but you know, <laughs> try and stay out unless you really need him. And the other one was like, fine to knock and come in. And then his older kid was teaching the younger kids how to use the signs to respect the fact that he's now working out of this home office. And I think we're all struggling to figure all of these things out. But so a lot of people are pointing to that. I'm going to share a phrase that I've actually been thinking about, but never shared before. I call this phenomenon work-life bleed because everything is not blending into each other anymore harmoniously. It's bleeding into each other unharmoniously and effectively we're bleeding out. So it's causing a lot of pain and disruption. So that's what's happening on the surface. But I'm going to invite us to think about something deeper, a different thing that's happening, not instead of, but in addition to this phenomenon. And that's this. Burnout is not new. Burnout has been around for a long, long time. It's been talked about. It's been a problem in all of our, like in a lot of people's lives in industry, trying to figure out how to solve it. What's happening now has just made it a lot worse. And it's brought the problem to a surface because of the scale, the number of people that are now being affected by it. But to look at only the current circumstance as the the root cause of it would be to ignore the fact that it's actually been a huge problem literally for decades now. So what happens if we actually look at that underlying, more of like the root cause? And here's my theory around that. So many people spend so many of their waking hours investing themselves fiercely and spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of emotion, and a lot of cognitive thought doing something that is anywhere from mildly to horribly misaligned with the fundamental impulse that they have for effort, for work. And when you do that, you can work really hard, but you're working in a way that is not a true expression of the thing that you feel that you're here to do. That misalignment over time starts to grate on you. It starts to sort of like wear you out. It's like two different size gears and a little bit of sand in the middle grinding against each other. And they'll still work in the beginning. And you can push them really hard. But over time, the nubs get all chewed up and the oil gets like ground away. And then all of a sudden, everything starts to grind. And and to keep them moving, you have to push harder and harder and harder. And it hurts more and more and more. And it causes damage. And eventually, the gears just grind to a stop and they become locked in place. And that's what's been happening in my mind to so many people for so many years. And that burnout is effectively, it's the grinding and slowing and the chipping away of our own internal purpose, meaning expression gears until we hit a point 
where eventually they grind to a stop and then we feel stuck and we have no idea what's actually happening, let alone how to get out of that state. So my, my lens on this is that yes, there's all the things that are happening with the current circumstance that are worsening it and exacerbating it and, and making people experience this at scale. There's the work life bleed side of it, but there's also the deeper issue, which is a profound misalignment of the work that we are doing and the work that we feel that we're here to do. Okay. We need to get in that, into that misalignment, but I have a question before that. How do you know if you're burned out or just like some people, it's like common for people to say, I feel so anxious right now, or I feel like a low level of depression or these, these things that are very much tied to mental health that we hear people feel more comfortable now talk about online. But how do you know it's just a little bit of anxiety versus I'm burned out? Yeah. You know, I think anxiety burnout is a feeling of just profound depletion. And I think that's a different sensation than anxiety when you're, you're, you're agitated and nervous about the future. And anxiety is more, it is either a fear about what the future might or might not bring. And that's often bundled with some level of compulsion, which can sometimes rise to the level of OCD, which is, is rooted in that end or an inability to let go of things that have happened in the past that you aren't happy with or that you feel in some way responsible for that didn't go the way that you had hoped they would go. So you're either projecting yourself into a future that's uncomfortable or projecting yourself back into a past that's uncomfortable. And you have an inability to let go of that state and simply live in the present. They feel differently. Burnout to me, at least in in the way that I see it and describe it, is more this sense of profound depletion. You know, like just you feel like everything, every cell inside of you is just tired, is just like you, you can't focus. It's effectively imagine, you know, if you spent a week sleeping only three hours a night. To me, that is sort of like probably a similar feeling. Not that I've done that, but a similar feeling. But you bring up a really interesting and I think important question, which is, okay, but that feeling also can be really similar to the feeling of depression, whether it's clinical depression or, you know, just a a deep sense of melancholy. And when we're feeling that, in my mind, I often think that we are potentially the least good people to figure out what's really happening. We can tap into it, but I think it's also really important to reach out for help. Reach out to people who are intimate partners in your life. Reach out to friends, reach out to family and get professional help. You know, go find somebody who is truly qualified to sit down with you and say, hey, tell me what's going on, who has the skills and the training to help you, like whether that's a therapist or whether that's a somebody who's a you know like a, a a minister of faith or or somebody, whatever that person is for you or whatever the community is for you, you know I think it's really important for us to not close ourselves off because that tends to be the compulsion when we're not feeling good. We step away from other human beings, not realizing that that actually makes everything worse. Oh, so very true. Okay, so let's go back to this concept you were talking about with this misalignment. Do you feel that a lot of the times when you get to that place of burnout, that that is a sign that you are misaligned? The work you are doing is not giving you meaning. Yeah. Well, I, I think when, by the time you get to a place of burnout, it for sure, it's, it's, it's a sign or at least, you know, like a flashing red beacon that says you might want to think about this. Um, 
but it's also a pretty trailing indicator. I think there are a lot of feelings that tend to happen before that, like just a sense of persistent discontent, a sense of waking up in the morning and feeling like, you know what? I just don't have a really strong sense of meaning in my life. Now that can come from a lot of different places, but given the fact that most of us will spend the vast majority of our waking hours for the rest of our lives doing this thing called work, that's a huge part of where we get meaning or it's a huge missed opportunity in not getting any meaning at all. So I think a lot of feelings, you know, where we're, we're questioning, like we just feel like, is what I'm doing mad? Like if you find yourself asking the question, does what I'm doing actually matter to anybody? Does it matter to me? Does it matter to anyone else? Does anyone care? Do I care? Like, does this actually, is it triggering something in me that says, oh, this is really deeply meaningful? And nobody, by the way, from the outside in can answer that question for you because meaning is a completely subjective state. It's a completely subjective experience. Somebody can't tell you this is meaningful or not. It may be to them, and people often try and convince you, but you're the only one who knows if something's really meaningful to you. So I think if you're feeling that lack of meaning or lack of purpose, if you're feeling like um, everything that you're doing is a slog and that time seems to slow in a bad way where you know you get to work and 10 minutes later, you look up thinking it's been an hour or hoping it's been an hour and it's really only 10 minutes, these are all signs of misalignment in my mind. Oh, this is this is good stuff because you know, you're talking right now to a lot of entrepreneurs, people that are either in 9 to 5 jobs and have side hustles that they want to create into a full-time thing or they've left their traditional job to start their online business. And so many of them left because they want to make a change. They want to do good in this world. They want to impact lives. So the work they're doing, maybe they're not ultra successful just yet. Some of them are, some of them aren't yet, but they know the work can do good, but they still are feeling like they wake up in the morning and they feel dread and they feel heavy and they feel as though, is anyone listening? So could that be a sign that Maybe they're not moving in the right direction that to, to find that meaning? Yes and no. And I, I love this question because you and I are both entrepreneurs, founders a couple of times over. So, you know, like we've lived in that space and we continue to live in that space with sustained uncertainty. And everything I've done has been bootstrapped. You know, like I haven't built a business where I've gone and raised venture capital. So everything, you know, in the beginning, it's based on me and a small ragtag team of human beings who for some reason raised their hand to join and create something cool. But in those early days as an entrepreneur, we may well feel all of this. And it's sort of like the entrepreneur's dilemma. We leave something else in the quest for freedom, agency, control, and impact. But in the early days of founding something, it's brutally hard. We don't have a whole lot of freedom. We don't have a whole lot of agency and we don't have a whole lot of impact. What we have is really, really hard work with high stakes and extremely high levels of uncertainty. And that can be brutalizing. That, by the way, doesn't mean what you're doing is wrong. It doesn't mean you're on the wrong path. Just because things aren't coming easily doesn't mean you made a wrong call. What it means is you've raised your hand to start something. And the fact that you're starting something that you believe genuinely matters inherently means the stakes will be high. And you're doing something where you don't know if it's going to work. High stakes, high levels of uncertainty, low levels of resource, and you having to show up and live in that space persistently 
can be a somewhat brutalizing experience in the early days, especially when you have to do all of the different things. I mean, I opened a yoga studio in New York City. I signed the lease the day before 9-11 and opened it eight weeks later. That alone was laden with so much profound, profound emotion. And at the same time, I was one of two people. Like we opened this space and the, the vision was to create this big, gorgeous community with, you know, like thousands of students and dozens of teachers and multiple floors in a building, which we eventually did do. But in the beginning, that wasn't my reality. You know, so I would show up and one day I'm, you know, like I'm teaching a class and one day I'm sitting behind a desk. One day I'm cleaning the bathroom. One day I'm washing the floors. One day I'm running spreadsheets. One day I'm the IT guy trying to figure out why the computer isn't working. And by the way, I'm bad at almost all of those things and I don't have the impulse for being good at them, but that's what you do. And I think, so I think you bring up such an important point in that in the early days, whether it's a side hustle or whether it's a thing that you actually stepped out of a mainstream job and gone 100% into to do, go in expecting it's going to be hard. Go in expecting it's going to take a lot out of you. And also understand that is the fundamental nature of what you have just said yes to. It doesn't mean it's wrong if it's really hard, especially in the early days, and it's taking a lot out of you. It means that is the nature of the beast that you have just signed up to participate in. Oh, that's powerful. I think somebody, many people listening right now, they needed to hear that. And it instantly brings me to my next question, which is, or a quick story of my own experience where when I left Tony Robbins, I started a business where I did one-on-one, I say coaching and consulting, but at the end of the day, I was doing social media for small businesses. And then I would consult with these small businesses and how to do their social media better. I hated it. I did wake up in the morning and think, does this even matter? I do not like doing one-on-one. It's not what I think I'm meant to do. I have no idea what I should do. But I created a business that literally made me feel completely burned out two years in. So some people listening right now could be in that situation where they're an entrepreneur, but the direction they've been going is not what feels meaningful to them. And so I want you to talk about this concept you've created of these sparkotypes because I do believe this is going to speak to those people that think, wait a second, I don't even know if I'm going in the right direction. Mm, yeah. And and that experience you described is so common. I've 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 done the exact same thing. I think yeah? you know, so many of us have. We go we go out because we want to create our own thing and realize, wait a minute, we have just recreated <laughs> an almost identical dynamic, except now the only one to blame for the way we feel is us. Exactly. And trust me, people don't have sympathy for that. No, <laughs> um, not at all. <laughs> right. They're like, you did this to yourself. You realize, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I kind of do. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, th- I think one of the things that's really important is this idea of alignment. You know, So before you make a disruptive move, whether it is um, to start your own business or to go to a new job or to create something on the side or something freelance, we tend to think first, what is the job? What is the title? What is the business? What is the product? What is the service that we want to step into or imagine into existence, right? Not bad things to think about. The problem is that's all trying to make decisions based on your external circumstances without any reference to your own inner preferences. So that the likelihood that who you are aligning with those things is kind of left to chance unless you actually first 
look inside and do the work to actually ask yourself, okay, so what actually fills me up? What empties me out? I think values work is really good no matter what you're doing. I've become really hyper-focused on this notion of what is the fundamental impulse that I have for effort, for work, where when I do that thing, it gives me the feeling of meanfulness. It drops me into flow. It lets me feel excited and energized. I feel fully expressed in every level and I feel a sense of purpose, both immediate, like I know what I'm working towards and more broadly, like a sense of purpose in life. Like I'm actually doing the thing I feel like I'm here to do. And I started to wonder, because if we can identify that impulse, right? If we can learn that about ourselves, then when we look out into the world and we decide what to say yes or no to, what to create or not to create, who to be in service of or not, we say it from a much deeper place of alignment because we're asking the question, is this thing aligned with this deepest impulse? Will it allow me to express it as fluidly and as purely and as often as I can? If the answer is yes, the likelihood of you stepping into that and then feeling utterly alive, what I call sparked, goes up dramatically. And when things get really hard, that sense of alignment is one of the things that actually gets you through those windows because they always will. There will always be moments where you're, where you're kind of brought to your knees or close to it, even if you're on a, you know, a, a path to success longer term. So I started getting really curious about these impulses. I was like, well, I, I have a sense for what mine is. But I wonder if everybody else has this same kind of impulse. And I wonder if you could actually identify some universal set of impulses for effort that existed across all different people, regardless of jobs. Like this is the deeper stuff. This is underneath the titles and the roles and the industries and the product and services and companies. This is the thing that gets us up in the morning and makes us work really hard for no other reason than the feeling that it gives us even if we end up really well compensated for it. So I started to look at literally every job, every title that was out there and start to deconstruct it and ask what's underneath that? What's underneath that? What's underneath that? Until it distilled down to a remarkably small set of impulses, 10 of them. I kind of hate the fact that it's 10 because you and I are both marketers. We're both entrepreneurs <laughs> and it feels so slick to me. I'm like, I knew oh, he came that. up with 10 things. I'm like, oh, How convenient. why can't it be 14 <laughs> or nine or something like that? But that's where we are. You know, the scientist in me holds open the possibility that like with further research, you know, that number will evolve, <laughs> but that's where I am right now. And I'm kind of hoping it evolves, but I, I haven't been able to figure out anything else. So once I identify these impulses, then I start to look at each one and I realize, oh, this is actually kind of cool. Every single impulse has its own quirky tendencies and behaviors and preferences that tend to wrap around it and form these archetypes. And then I start to call them sparkotypes, which is really just a fun way of saying they're the archetypes for work that sparks you. They start sharing them around and asking all sorts of people about them and does it resonate? Does it not? What's landing and what's not? And testing with sort of like more and more people. And then I got to a point where I said, you know, I want to really understand these at scale. Like, is this real or is this not? So we spent most of 2018 building an assessment designed to serve two purposes. One, to gather a ton of data and figure out what's really going on here. And two, to see if we could create a tool that would help people discover what their Sparkotype is. And we released that 
the, the sparker type assessment out of beta at the end of that year and into the world. And since then, more than 500,000 people have completed it. Thousands more people are completing it every week. We're sitting on over 25 million data points that have taught me so much. Okay. So these are real at scale across the world. And we've learned like, there's so much more nuance and deep understanding of the impulses and the behaviors and the tendencies and how these show up in different people. And I've also learned, you know, that we're all some blend of a bunch of different impulses, but there tend to be really strong ones on both ends of the spectrum. One being the ones that express themselves really strongly. And those are the ones that make us come alive. And on the other side, they're the ones where when we're forced to do that work or we have to do that work, they tend to really empty us out. And, and even if you're good at it, even if you're skilled at it. So I call the ones at the strong end of the spectrum, your primary sparkotype. Think of it as your strongest impulse for work that makes you come alive. And then right behind that is your shadow sparkotype. And you can think about that as sort of like your next strongest impulse, but we've seen that there's a more nuanced relationship. And that is that most people do the work of their shadow sparkotype in order to be able to do the work of their primary at a higher level. So it's sort of like that it lives in the shadow of the primary, but when you do that work, it helps you do the work of that strongest impulse much better than all the way on the other end of the spectrum is what I call the anti-sparkotype. This is the work where, you know, oftentimes as, as an entrepreneur or somebody who's building something on the side, you have to do it because it's just a required part of creating something. But it's the work that is the heaviest lift for you, takes the most out of you, requires the greatest amount of recovery and the greatest amount of external motivation or support. Um, and when you do it, even if you get really good at it, and I've gotten good at my particular anti-sparkotype because I've had to as an entrepreneur, because I've had to do it a whole bunch, it makes it easier. It makes it better, but it never really entire makes it all the way better. You know, this is the thing where if you have to live in that space, if that becomes your dominant work, your, your primary work, it can be incredibly gutting. So knowing these things about yourself, these three parts of your Sparkotype profile is incredibly empowering when you're trying to make a decision about what to say yes to, what to say no to, what tasks or projects or business ventures to take on or jobs or roles or things like that. Um, and it, it lets you stand in a place of so much more agency because you're starting from the inside out rather than from the outside in. So that's the background of where this whole body of work has um, emerged out of. And it, it continues to emerge. And you know, I, I keep deepening into it. And we're doing sort of like next level research to tease out different things now. Okay. So I know people are like, I want to know my sparkotype. They, I know this is coming. So I want to talk about these further. I want to ask you a few questions about mine and I want to know what yours are. I feel like you and I are going to have the same, I have no idea, but are going mm -hmm. to have the same anti. That's the one I feel like you and I might have the same, but we'll see. But should we tell them where to take the assessment now or should we wait? Should we, should we get into it yeah. a little more? No, that's fine. I mean, the, the, okay. you can find the assessment online at sparkatype.com, which is just S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E.com. And like a good entrepreneur, I also own the misspelling of that word without the E in the middle. So, <laughs> Okay. 
I love that. No matter what, you'll, you'll, you'll find it there. It's, it's available to anyone. It's free. It was important for me to keep this accessible. Um, so anyone can sort of like discover this basic information about themselves. Okay. So I want you all to take it and I want you in my Instagram DMs and tell me the, I want you to tell me the primary shadow and anti. I want all of you in my Instagram DMs. I am so excited to hear what your assessment says, but okay. So tell me, first of all, tell me yours, Jonathan. I'm very curious. So, so here's my profile. So my primary spark type is what I call the maker. So the fundamental impulse of the maker is to make ideas manifest. It's all about the process of creation. I literally, I, I walk around and I, I'm thinking to myself, I could make that, I could make that, I could make that. And it has been that way since I was a kid. I don't care about a whole lot of other ways that I could work or like invest myself, but give me the opportunity to create something from nothing. And I am all in. So as you know, as a little kid, I would I would make bicycles and tree houses. When I got a little bit older, I would I learned how to paint and I started painting jean jackets, album covers on jean jackets. That was my original walking around <laughs> money in high school when like album covers were among so the cool. best art on the planet. Have you posted any pictures of that? That needs to be on social media. Oh my god, I wish I had any oh. any pictures of the album covers I painted. I have there have been times where I've been scrounging to try and find old storage stuff to see if I saved oh, any so and I, I don't have any of them. Um <laughs> but it would have been amazing cuz there were some good jackets actually. Um so there, you know, that morphed into in college I had a love of music, so I blended that with entrepreneurship, and I was a DJ, and then I started a sound and lighting and DJing company, so I built the company, and then all this physical equipment and sets, and then that was actually the first company that I sold. There's been just a continuing stream of things that have built businesses, brands, books, media, experiences. I love the process of something from nothing, or even like something much bigger and more defined from something that started smaller. To me, that lights me up. It gets me up in the morning. Um, and it's also something that tends to show up in people very early in life, not because the impulse is in any way sort of like formed earlier in life, but because the opportunity to actually show it is given to kids at the earliest age. Um, so, you know, we're, we're given paints and we're given crayons and we're given blocks and we're given, you know, erector sets and we're given all these different things. And basically we're, we're telling kids make stuff from the earliest days. So it's introduced and rewarded really early. So the impulse tends to show up really early also, whereas some other ones really don't. So my, my shadow sparkotype is what I call the scientist. Now the impulse for the scientist is to figure things out. You're all about burning questions, puzzles, and problems. So tell somebody who is a non-scientist, I got a really hard problem. And, you know, like, I would love for you to be the one to just go deep and figure this out. It's going to be thorny and wicked and complex. Most people want nothing to do with that. They're like, tap me in when you pretty much have it figured out. And then like, (laughs) I'll figure out like what my role is after that. The scientist is like, oh yeah, I am all in on this. I just let me at it. You know, the thornier, the better, because it's all about problem solving. It's like, you're the puzzle master. When you don't have a burning question in front of you, you feel like there's just nothing to do that's interesting to you. So for me, that's my shadow, which means I'm good at it. I like doing it. It fills me up, but it's largely in service of my maker primary. 
So an example of that is I will be building something. Let's say I'm building a website. I happen to do a lot of my own design work. And I, I hit a problem where I'm like, okay, so I can't stay in that generative state of creation because now there's a solution. There's a there's a there's some quirky thing where it's tripping me up, whether it's code or whether it's a platform. So I go into scientist mode and I go into puzzle master mode until I have only the thing that I need figured out that will allow me to step back into maker mode. And as soon as I do, then I'm back in the process of generation. Whereas if scientist was my primary, I would just be like, ooh, this is cool, but there's so much more that I could go deeper into here. And I would go deeper into more problems and more nuance and more complexity. The fact that I could care less about that kind of validates that that's actually my shadow and not my primary. I only do it to be able to be better at the process of creation. Now on the exact opposite side for me, my anti-sparkotype is what I call the essentialist. Oh, it's different than mine. Okay. I had a feeling it might be because- It's very different actually. Yeah. The essentialist is all about creating order from chaos. It's about systems and process, utility, clarity. It's funny because I, I look at you and I'm like, you're amazing at that. And I actually was almost wondering if that was one of your primary or shadow it's because- It's my primary. It's right, my primary. You're, you're right. so good at that. Um, and, and, and it's something that I would imagine also like, you're, you're kind of like, oh, let me add it. You know, like this is, I I just want to like take this, deconstruct it, break it down, figure out the systems, the steps, the processes, you know, which is one of the things that makes you such an extraordinary teacher is that it's also, you've done the work, not only to, you know, develop the skills of, of teaching, but you've also, you're such a master of really distilling things down to their essence and creating order and systematization and process so that when you turn around and then share it with other people, what you're sharing is is like so beautifully thought out. So, so now that you've told that to me, I'm curious about this. So what I've learned over the years, you know, in the beginning, it was like, okay, so it's about order from chaos, clarity, utility, systems, processes. What I've learned is there's a much more nuanced experience that a lot of essentialists have, which is that when they get something dialed in, where they're just like, yeah, this is it. It's not just about clarity. It's not just about order. It's not just about utility. It's art to them. It's beauty. There's there's an elegance. Like You feel like this is elegant. I have just- uh created art. Is that something you feel? Perfect word. You Okay. You, this is so embarrassing to say, but if you show me a beautifully well systematized Dropbox folder, that is beautiful to me. That is art. <laughs> and I am not even exaggerating. So yes, I feel calm. I feel accomplished. I feel in a really good flow when I organize information so that it's easy to find and easy to navigate so you can get it done quickly. And I am like, what do you mean that is your anti? What? Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> from where I'm coming from being at my primary, I'm like, how could that? So talk to me a little bit about why that shows up as your anti. I'm, I literally am clueless. <laughs> yeah. So so I'm going to talk to you about that, but I'm also going to talk to you about the reaction that you just had to it. Okay. <laughs> so it shows up as my anti, but literally... So I've gotten good at it because well, like when you're starting things, you have to get good at it because I don't have other people to do it, you know, but it, it literally, it makes me want to just run away. I just, uh, it's the, you have to, it's the last thing that I have to be dragged 
to do. Um, and the minute that I have, um, resourced in a way where I can, you know, like have somebody else where it's their thing, do it. I do it. I, there's no explanation for why we have these impulses. You know, I can't tell you whether it's genetic. I can't tell you whether it's environmental or behavioral or ordained from something else. What I can tell you is that these things exist in all of us. Um, and they're, and they're strong. And when you stifle them or when you set yourself up so that you're working against them, there's, there's a huge amount of weight on you and a huge amount of friction that you tend to feel when you show up and do that kind of work. But your reaction is actually really interesting. And I think it, it brings up a really interesting point. So you as the essentialist look at me and you're like, dude, are you kidding me? How can you not just devour that work? That is like the coolest work on the planet. So we have this thing that happens where when we think about our sparkotype, our unique impulse, we can't conceive of other people <laughs> not having that same impulse because it's just, it's so central to who we are and what gets us up in the morning. It's the thing that makes us work so, so, so hard, you know, for no other reason that feeling we're just like, how, how could you not, how could you not have that same thing? Because we assume that it gives everybody else that same feeling that you get, yes. but in fact, it doesn't, you know, so it's sort of like that old thing. Like if you have a hammer, all the world is a nail. But here's something even more nuanced about the essentialist in particular. So essentialist work, I, I can't tell you why, but I, I can tell you we've seen this so much now. The work of the essentialist tends to be so strongly disliked by everyone who is not an essentialist that the minute they find somebody who is, all they want to do is give them everything that is that kind of work. So the essentialist can very often, especially if you're working in an organization or on a team, as soon as you're known as being the person who actually really enjoys doing this, and very often because of that impulse, you get really good at it just the way that you have. If you're working where a whole bunch of other people have that work to do and they don't want to do it, they will find you and they will do everything they can to give you that work. So there can be really major boundary issues that happen with essentialists because it's the work that you like. It's the work that you're really good at. It gives you that feeling of expressed potential, like you're coming alive and you're competent and skilled at it. So you feel good about that because there's a level of craft and mastery, but you can get overwhelmed really quickly by everybody else wanting you to do that work for them. And you have to really create strong boundaries to understand what to say yes or no to in that context. Oh, this is such perfect advice. I have somebody on my team that's very similar to me. She's my right hand and she too, I, she hasn't taken it yet. I can't wait for her to take the assessment and I want you all to take it too because I want you to really dive into this. But she, I would assume is the same as me. We'll see. But what happens is she is tasked with all the systems and processes and all of that. And then she gets to the point where she's getting so many questions to develop it, to create it, to tell people what to do with it, that she gets to the point that she's like, you can go look yourself. You can go find the answer. <laughs> got to the point that she's like, wait a second. And it, it's boundaries, but it, it came out as like frustration at first. Yeah, really common story, especially on teams or in a company or organization where there are a whole bunch of teams, a whole bunch of different projects, and yet you become known as that person. And then all, people who you like don't even know, you know, like start slacking you or messaging and like, hey, can you help out with this? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit unfair for sure. But okay, so tell me this then. My shadow is Sage. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that? This makes so much sense. So it was sort of like what I was saying before. So you spend all this work deconstructing things, ordering them, creating systems and process. You're like, I understand completely how to make this work in a linear way, in a way where it just, it makes sense. It just makes sense. It's step-by-step. It's beautiful. It's elegant. The sage, the fundamental uh, impulse for the sage is to awaken insight. It's all about illumination. You may learn something or you may create something, but for you, it really comes alive when you turn around and then share it in a compelling way where other people then have insight and understanding from what you share. So what's interesting is that for you, oftentimes, and I'm really curious about this now. So like if there is this, this off frequent relationship where the work of the, the sage helps you be better at the work of the essentialist, for you, I wonder if when you teach, when you share, when you build courses, when you spend so much time teaching and mentoring, coaching and doing all these different things, that actually not only, you know, is it the mechanism that allows you to, you know, like build a business and generate revenue and all this other stuff, but I would be willing to guess that that process for you serves another purpose too, which is that it is an incredible information gathering purpose for you to then go back to that essentialism and be able to do it at a completely different and higher level as you iterate on what you're doing. Oh, you 1 million percent nailed that because my favorite thing to do is to go back to, into a digital course I've already created and I get to do the second iteration of it. I get to revamp and revise and renew based on the information I've gotten from teaching it to my students and the feedback and insight of seeing how they've used it. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, it's when you start to see these relationships and you understand the roles that these different things are playing, it's like it can be so powerful because it just explains so much of the way that you are in the world. It really does. That's why I'm excited for everyone to take the assessment because you it one it validates like, yes, that is exactly who I am and it, it actually gave me a little bit more confidence to say, okay, like knowing who you are at your core is the most beautiful thing ever. So learning more about yourself and why you do the things you do helps you understand who you are. So that was one of the reasons I really love this assessment. I have some questions about it before we'll we'll wrap this part up. My anti is performer. Got it. So can you help me with that one a little bit? Oh, 100%. Now I feel like maybe I'm a fake or something. <laughs> Let's go back to when I first met you, right? Okay. <laughs> you were a behind the scenes person. Yes. You know, that was kind of your jam. You were that, you know, like in your prior job, in your prior life, when even when you stepped into what you've been doing for the last, what is it, a decade or so or longer now, like a yeah. dozen years, you did it in a way where you hid a lot. You know, it wasn't until I want to say the last couple of years until you're like, okay, I'm stepping out of the shadow. Very much. So the impulse for the performer is not necessarily performing arts. Very often it gets channeled that way, but the deeper impulse is to animate, energize, and enliven an interaction, experience, or moment. You breathe life into something so that it lands, it bypasses rational thought. Very often it lands in an emotional, visceral, embodied way, right? Now that impulse can be really important. It, it often as a little kid is tracked into performing arts because it seems like the only logical place for it to go. But 
the beautiful thing about that impulse is that it is incredibly valuable in all these different domains from, you know, a meeting in a boardroom to a presentation to teaching a course or a class to working behind a bar to business development or sales or parenting, all these different things. So here's the thing. And let's see if we can figure this out with you, right? So that's your anti-spark type. And I think part of the thing that validates that to a certain extent is that you spent so long trying to lead with the information and hoping and believing and feeling like the information alone and the clarity and the systems and processes I have created are so good, so effective, so valuable that they'll effectively speak for themselves, that they're going to do the work of all of the convincing. You became a great marketer also and incredible copy and all these amazing things. And I, w- I would imagine that a, a part of that impulse was that you didn't want to play that role of being the person who is in some way focusing the spotlight, bringing energy to it, animating and enlivening. And what's so fascinating to me is that over the last few years, you've been really front and center in a personal way. You're on you like the different social platforms, dancing and showing yourself <laughs> and doing all these different things. So you can build the skills. This is what I talked about earlier. The impulse may not be natural for you. It may be one of the harder things that you do. You can build the skills and do the reps over time that makes it better, that makes you more confident and more comfortable doing it. But I would venture to guess that even as good as you've gotten at it, as much as you've done that, that there's something in you where it is still an experience that takes way more energy for you to step into that mode. And you probably have to recover way more than you ever would need to if you were just doing the work of the essentialist. A million percent. I will never choose to go on stage, jump on social media, um, you know, share personal parts of my life, which I do all of that. That is never my first impulse. I would rather be in a slide deck working on slides for a training that I have coming up or uh, writing my book or anything like that. So yes, a million percent. I do it because I, I believe that it makes a difference and an impact, but it's never my first choice. Yeah. And that is such an important point that you just made is sometimes, especially as entrepreneurs doing our own thing, we do all the things, right? And we do them sometimes because we just have to, there's no one else to do it. Or sometimes we do them because we realize that it's actually important to to our ability to either be better at the, the bigger impulse, or it may be important uh, because of your value set. You know, you may have a value of really deeply delivering meaningful, impactful things to other people. And you realize, okay, for some reason, me doing this work, which may be the work of my anti-spark type, it makes everything else, it helps everything else. And it helps also step more into uh, my values. So I'm going to do it. But at the same time, it's also good to know that that will very likely always take more out of you and require more recovery than a lot of other things so that you can A, forgive yourself for feeling that way and say, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not a slacker. You're not lazy. You're not just haven't done the work, but also B, that you can say, okay, I actually need to, like, I need a minute after I do this to just pause and to recover and to refuel, you know, go for a walk or, you know, be with anyone. So, so it allows you to build scaffolding and practices and tools around that that will support your ability to go there if you feel like 
there is that, in fact, a reason that you do need to, to do that work on a regular basis, but be, be as okay as you can in the process. Okay. So that actually leads me to my next question around learning more about your sparkotype. And that is, if you learn about what your primary is, so by now people listening have actually probably taken it or they're going to take it. Do you learn how that serves you and how it can maybe not serve you? Like what do you, when, when you start to explain what these mean, what does it do for you just beyond this is why you're so good at that? Yeah. So it does a couple of things. One is it gives you really good insight into your decision-making process. So when you're thinking about a next job, when you think about a, a company to start, when you think about a product to create or a service to create or a team to be on, things like that, it gives you just so much more perspective about why you might say yes or no to something. Because you can ask yourself, will this give me an opportunity to express this really important impulse to me? But there's a second thing that we've seen, which is really kind of interesting and more nuanced. We started to see this with the assessment. The early readers of my book, of the book Spark, have reported this on a whole different level, um, which is you start to feel seen. You know, that what we're doing is like you said, like you felt validated. Of course, nobody, no other person can validate another person, but it's a tool that helps reflect back to you a deeper truth about who you are, what matters to you, what fills you, what and empties you out. It's rarely a surprise to, to people, but so often we've stepped away from it or stifled it or buried it or hidden it or ignored it. And ref- having it reflected back at you, there's a feeling of being seen, not for the facade that we present to the world, but for who you really are, for what your deeper sensibilities are. And that feeling right now, especially when we're in a world where there's a ton of isolation, where so many of us are actually hiding, you know, we're, we're really, really, really public and we're really, really, really hiding in public, you know? Um, so to feel seen beyond the facade, beyond the presentation is a really powerful experience. And then to have language to be able to, to literally describe yourself to yourself in a way that lands as true and real. And then have that same language to be able to share with other people and, and effectively say to them, see me, read this, and you'll see me, you'll know me in a different way has been such a powerful experience. And I said, very likely more so with a book because there's so much more depth in it. But we've heard stories about people who are sharing it in relationships, people are sharing it across families, having like everybody do this literally because it gives them language to be able to know each other better and have conversations that are so much closer to the truth. Um, and I just feel like we are in a moment in time in our history where we're struggling so much to feel seen and heard and understood and held that um, the fact that that is emerging out of this work, it's, just, it's actually really meaningful to me. Very, very. We are online marketers, which means we have unique needs. And there are so many options out there for paid media. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where should you go to reach your ideal audience. But here's the thing. Have you thought about LinkedIn ads? LinkedIn ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers, and it allows you to build the right relationships and drive results and reach your customers with meaningful content. You do not want to sleep on LinkedIn ads. And here's the thing, 79% of content marketers said LinkedIn produces the best results for paid media. 
I hear it from so many of my peers, and I know you're doing important work. And with that, you want to make sure that the work you're doing is getting in front of the right people. And that's what LinkedIn ads will allow you to do. So let your marketing efforts connect with the right audience and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. So if you go to linkedin.com slash Amy, you can get that $100 credit. So that's linkedin.com slash Amy. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so let's talk about this book really quick because it's called Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive. And I know that so many listening right now are like, yes, yes, and yes. And my students, they like to dig deeper. They like to go beyond the surface. And so they're going to want to dive into their primary and their shadow and their anti at a much deeper level. And that's what the book does. So give me a little insight about why should somebody pick up the book beyond the assessment? Yeah. So the assessment is a great first step in, you know, anybody can take it. It gives you sort of like the fundamentals, like these are your three things, your shadow, your primary, and your anti. And even in the, the, the brief amount of information you get from that, a lot of people are like, wow, this is really, this is, this is making a big difference. But then we start to get so many questions afterwards, like, where do I go next? What do I do with this? Is there a process to actually help me integrate this into my work? And then also, okay, so now I've gotten almost like enough information where I realize this is real and it matters to me, but tell me more. Tell me more. Like, How do other people who, who share this same type show up in the world? What do they struggle with? What do they do with it? How do they channel this thing? Where do they get tripped up? Where are the commonalities here? What are the weird quirks and tendencies and preferences that I have? And also, how does this show up in other people? What is the data that you have around all of this? And is there you know, a conventional and unconventional way to monetize this, whether in a traditional career or in something that I'm building myself? So there's just an, a, a whole different level of depth um, in a book that I'm, I'm able to actually distill, then we could sort of like share um, in, in the, the, the more immediate summary results that you get after the assessment. And also it's the comp- compilation of years now of me looking at this massive data set, talking to thousands of people about their personal experience and identifying all of these common behavioral patterns that have been building up in my head. It's almost like I had to write this book because the pressure of what was building in my head had to get out some way. <laughs> it's like the maker in me had to clear the, I had to clear the ram so that I could actually allocate it to, to go deeper into it and start like different, different aspects of the project. So and I ended up just pouring everything, literally everything, not just from this, but but from the 20 years that have preceded this and led to this body of work into this book. So that's that's sort of like the difference between the assessment and the book. Well, I am so excited for your book. Congratulations. This is like a labor of love. And I want all of my listeners to get their hands on it. So where could they go to actually get the book? Yeah. So the name of the book is just, it's sparked, discover your unique imprint for work that comes alive. And it is literally available at booksellers everywhere, wherever you want to get it, local bookshops, indie bookshops, online, whatever makes you happy, you'll be able to find it. Okay, perfect. Jonathan, you are such a dear friend. I love that we can say we go back 13 years and to be able to chat with you today on such important work means the world to me. So thank you so very much for being here. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really been so much fun. And um, and I love the fact that um, you reminded me that we have such a, a long and awesome history together. <laughs> So there you have it. I hope you love this episode with Jonathan as much as I have and go take the assessment. Better yet, take the assessment and get the book. I absolutely love that you can dive into each of your different archetypes at a deeper level through what he shares in the book. You're going to be so glad you got it. So those are the two things I want you to do. Take the assessment and go get the book. And also, actually, I've got a third one for you. I'm dying to know what your primary and shadow and anti end up being. And I was so surprised that mine was performer for the anti. I really had to dive into that one a little bit deeper. So share with me your three. So I'm just at Amy Porterfield on Instagram. Get into my DMs. Tell me you took the assessment. Share with me what your three were and tell me if any of them surprised you. I'm curious if you were surprised like I was. All right, my friend, I hope you have a wonderful day. I can't wait to talk to you again soon. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.